Welcome in, everybody. It is Wednesday night, and we are doing the Deep Dive Bible Study, and I'm so glad that you are here with us tonight for this special show, part 24 of Kings of Compromise, as we walk verse by verse through the books of First and Second Kings. And we are finally getting some traction in Second Kings. We are in Second Kings chapter 5, if you want to pull out your Bible and go there. But of course, you know that on the screen there's going to be all the biblical text for the entire study. And we're going to talk about something that I believe gets no fame, no attention in our world, but rings with tremendous volume in heaven. What is it? Humility. Now, the reason why we don't talk about humility is because our world does not, at least on the surface, reward humility. Our politicians have to be increasingly arrogant and boastful and talk about how they can save our country. Uh, celebrity culture uh, is almost demanding of a audacious kind of personality that you have to put on for other people to pay attention to you. Uh, journalists have to write or come up with attention-grabbing clickbait headlines. Even in your children's education system, uh, it is more and more about what kid can outperform the others in either sports or academics or music. And more and more, our country has diminished humility. But again, it is a characteristic that rings loudly in heaven. We must remember this if we're going to see God bless our lives and we're going to see the best of his life in us show to other people around us. So without further ado, let's dig into the Kings of Compromise. Who are we talking about? We are talking about Naaman the leper. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, and this is incredible right here on the, right on the jump. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So there's your uh, kind of like compelling reason to read this text. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the servant service of Naaman's wife. A couple of things that we're going to learn here about this passage. Number one, we're going to learn about God's sovereignty over the nations. Who is Naaman? He is the commander, not of Israel's armies. He's the commander of an army of the king of Syria. Syria is Israel's arch nemesis. They've been an arch nemesis with Israel since the time of David. And back and forth, these two nations have been going for the better part of the books, first and second kings. And Naaman is a commander in their army. He was victorious. He was successful. He had gained favor in, in the sight of his boss, his king. And then this curious phrase, because by him, the Lord, oh my goodness, can you read this with me real quick? This is just pay attention here. By him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Whoa, God gives victory to Israel. Wait, not just Israel. God gives victory to whoever gets victory. This is incredibly important. The first thing that we're being asked to see in this passage and in this story that is really a story about humility is to recognize the sovereignty of God. All humility starts with the sovereignty of God. And I don't know if I spelled that right on the screen, but I'm just guessing that I did. If you have a healthy view of the sovereignty of God, you will be a humble and receptive person to the blessings of God. 
And there's a couple other things that we need to see. And it has to do with what Naaman did. Look at verse two. It says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So this is a refugee. This is a a girl who has now been trafficked into slavery from Israel. And, And she works in Naaman's house. So we're, we're seeing that the Lord gave Syria victory over Israel to the extent that they were able to take slaves captive. And one of the people that won and, and, and conquered and caused that to happen through the Lord's work is this guy named Naaman. But he has a problem. He has leprosy. And leprosy in the uh, Hebrew... Uh, it could mean an infectious skin disease. It could mean uh, what has been known as Hansen disease in our modern times. It is now cured, of course, through modern scientific medical advancement. Uh, it is no longer a problem, but in the ancient world, if you had leprosy, it was incurable. Uh, Leviticus talks about leprosy a lot because leprosy is a visual symbol of sin. Uh, we, it, it is, uh, a couple of facts about leprosy. It has been around since humans have been around. Uh, it, it affects the outward appearance. And so it is an inward infection, infection that affects the outward appearance. And then um, there was no cure. Uh, if it was cured, it was considered to be a miracle by God. Uh, there were prescriptions for what happened to the person who was cured of leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14. Lots of details about that. Uh, one of the most important things is if you are pronounced cured by the priest of your leprosy, you shaved off all your hair, you bathed in water, and then they they um, lathered you up in oil from head to toe. You looked like a newborn baby. So to be cured of leprosy was to look like a newborn baby, was to look like you were born again. Really cool kind of pictures there in the Old Testament about leprosy. So you have this great compelling um, narrative right here in verse one and two. You've got this foreign dignitary commander of an army that has beaten Israel's army, that has raided them, that has carried off slaves from them. And he looks like he's winning on every level, but he's still got leprosy. And he's a pitcher. Naaman is a pitcher for you. It's a pitcher for me. No matter how high you climb, no matter how great you become, no matter how amazing you achieve things in life, you cannot solve the sin problem in your own works. And that's what we're being asked here to, to see. Uh, leprosy is a universal problem, but there is a God who is in charge of the universe to whom we find deliverance or from whom, in whom we find deliverance. Amen. So that is just the first two verses of the text. Let's go on to verse three. The little girl, this again, slave girl trafficked into Syrian territory uh, from probably through Naaman's conquest, said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. A couple things that we got to point out here about this text. We cannot overstate, and I really mean this, the faith of that servant girl. Here she is, an enslaved trafficked a helpless victim of international warfare. She is outside of her country. She is a foreigner. She is enslaved. Like I said, she could have had the attitude of good. Naaman's getting what he deserves. Naaman should never have taken me captive. He never should have won any of these battles. I am against him. My nation is against him and he should be dead. And I can't wait till he's dead. And then I'll have my freedom. She doesn't do any of that. She has several strikes against her too. Okay, let's go through them. Foreigner. She's from Israel, not Syria. She's a woman. 
Women in the ancient world had no rights. Women as, as far back as 100 years in this country had very little rights. Well, this is the ancient world. She had no rights. She's young. She's a young foreign woman. She's a slave. Slaves were not listened to in the ancient world. One of the things about Ephesians chapter 6 that really sparks a lot of controversy in the um, Eastern world as opposed to the Western world is that Paul addresses women and slaves at all in those passages. To address a woman through a letter was unheard of in the ancient world. To address slaves was even more unheard of. And here the Bible, even in the fact that Paul writes to slaves and writes to women, shows that the Bible is leveling the playing field between women and men, slaves and free. So anyway, she's a slave, she's a woman, she's a foreigner, she's young, and she's got no name. We don't even know her name still to this day. This is an amazing character in scripture. She is going to change the trajectory of Naaman's life, and we don't even know her name. And yet, what does she do? She serves. <laughs> she serves even in spite of her condition in life. And she is a model for humility that we're going to talk about when we get to tap into truth at the end of this uh, content. But, 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 but here's what you have, is you have a picture right off the bat of this great mighty man who has won victories over Israel. Uh, he's got this incurable disease, and then you've got on the other side of the story, this helpless victim of, of international warfare with no rights, no privileges, no opportunities, and all she has is her mouth. And Christians, can we just stop right there and say... Sometimes that's all you've got. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you've got in life is your mouth. How are you using your mouth in your life where you are? You can use it to complain or you can use it to proclaim. You can use it to grumble or you can use it to share grace. Amen. You can use your mouth one of two ways. You can get bitter through the events of your life and share all your bitterness and all the reasons why your life stinks and everybody's out to get you and the whole world's uh, you know, opposed to you and there's no hope for you. Or you can give God praise in spite of your condition. I mean, I, I just, I, we could spend all day talking about this woman because she is an image. She is a an inspiration of profound faith that says, I'm not going to let the conditions of my life corrupt the contents of my heart. I am going to serve where I am. Okay, last thing that we want to point out in this text is that Naaman brought 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of uh, gold, and 10 changes of clothing. What is that in relation to other amounts in the, in the biblical text? Well, all I got to do is go back to 1 Kings chapter 16 and see that this amount of silver that Naaman brings to the king of Israel is five times the amount that that was required for the king of Israel to purchase the land on which he built the palace in Samaria. So he also brings uh, 6,000, I'm sorry, he brings, uh, yeah, 6,000 checks of gold and 10 changes of clothing. If you had one pair of clothes in the ancient world, you were middle class. 10 changes of clothing is 10 times the middle class salary of today. So he is bringing an enormous offering to kind of, you know, grease the skids, if you will, with Israel, with Israel's God, with Israel's king, to get healing for his body. This is how people who work in the realm of pride work. They believe that their blessings are there to take care of themselves. And if they just shower enough blessings, you know, quid pro quo, you know, they're like Don Corleone, I'll do you a favor. Then you owe me one back. And so they're going to go back and forth on this, you know, economic relationship with other people through their pride, through their possessions. And God is going to totally Shut that down in Naaman's life. Let's go on. Verse six. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when you, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure of his leprosy. Now, this is the king of Syria sending a letter to the king of 
Israel saying, I need a cure. I've heard there's a cure. You, the king, cure him. Now look at the response of the king of Israel. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is making or seeking a quarrel with me. So basically what we have to see in this text is that the king of Israel is completely godless. <laughs> uh, he is, I believe it's Jehoram still. Yeah, it is Jehoram from Ahab's line. He first off says, is, am, am I God? No, he should know the God, but he doesn't. So he immediately thinks, okay, he wants me to think that I'm God, right? He, he wants to put that on me. I don't, I don't even, I'm not God. And then, and then I don't kill and I don't make a lie. And then listen to how he says he's seeking to quarrel with me. He's, he's looking to, to start some kind of international conflict so that we go back to war. The king of Israel is completely thinking in natural terms, in earthly terms. And there's something else that we're supposed to see here in the text throughout this chapter. And I've mentioned this about first and second Kings before, and I'll mention it again. The books are called first and second Kings, but God keeps using prophets and servants to accomplish great things. It's over and over and over again. We see it in these narratives. The Kings are not the story in the book of Kings. In fact, the Kings are oftentimes the worst people in the, on the pages of, of scripture. It is the servants, it is the servant girl, this slave girl. It is the prophets of Elijah and Elisha, these people who were considered troublers of the nation, outsiders, uh, wrong side of history people, people who were evil according to the coach, cultural uh, you know, ideologies of the day. And, and yet it is through those people, the outsiders, the unfit, according to the cultural standards, the, the retrobates, according to the cultural standards, that God uses. See, God doesn't work through kings. God works through servants. Ooh, hello, somebody that's, that's looking at 2024, already seeing the you know, presidential election start to ramp up in our country. And I want you to just remember this if you remember nothing else from this, these two verses. We think through kings. We think through presidents and politicians and powerful people. And God works through servants. And God works through the unpowerful, the the disabled people, if you will, the people who don't have the tools at their disposal to impress and to force through their agenda in life. What a beautiful picture of hope for you, Christian, where you are working in whatever industry you're in, and you feel like you're the only Christian and you have no power, no rights, no no pull in the in the in the in the in the company, no pull in your society, in your neighborhood. I don't know don't you dare measure yourself by what people consider important. Measure yourself by what God considers important. Amen. So let's go on. Verse eight. Elijah hears this. So it says when Elijah hears, the, uh, sorry, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Okay. You'd be tempted to miss a lot in this text if you didn't slow down and read it. A couple of things that we're supposed to see here. Elisha is literally flabbergasted that the king is tearing his clothes. He's like, why are you doing this? How, how many times does your father, do you need to see that there's a prophet that every time I speak and every time I call on to God, every time I tell you victory or defeat is ahead, it happens. How, how hard is your heart that you will still not receive this, that you will let your 
the way you think about political uh, meanderings and maneuverings shape who you are. How long are you going to let that go on for? He's, he's flabbergasted. He is at the end of his rope. And then, he, then this is incredible. He says, let him come to me and slow down in verse 9. Naaman came with his horses. And remember, he's probably got a fleet of horses with him and chariots. So he's not just got horses, he's got chariots with him. This is like the president pulling up in his, um, what's that called? The president's motorcade. And he's got his, you know, the uh, SUVs and, and, and those big honking, you know, Suburbans with the lights flashing and the you know the motorcycles on each side of the suburbans and there's seven suburbans and there's secret service agents and there's all these powerful people and here he comes and they've got the flags waving and this is Naaman coming to where <laughs> the door of Elisha's house Elisha's a servant he's a prophet he's an outsider and so he's just uh you've got this great picture you almost can see like the 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 drone or the helicopter footage hovering over Elijah's house as <laughs> the community is all disturbed and there's the motorcade from a Naaman and 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 no Elijah. This is again slow down verse ten and Elisha what sent a messenger to him. He doesn't even open the door. He doesn't go out. He is not impressed by the powerful presentation of Naaman. This is how God works. He is not going to be impressed with our presentation. He is not impressed with our prideful positions. And and then Elisha doesn't, he doesn't just send him a message. He sends him one of the most humbling messages possible. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. This is incredible. Naaman is insulted. Verse 11 says as much. Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place to, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Okay, so anger is a sign of pride. And that's what Naaman has. Naaman thinks that there's supposed to be some kind of, you know, um, dignitary protocol on the, ha- on the part of Elisha. He should come out. He should wave his hand. He should do this, like, you know, this big symbol, this big to-do, this big uh, religious, expressive kind of pageantry to say, I'm going to bring healing to you in the name of the Lord, my God, and uh, it's going to show you that God responds to your motorcade impressiveness. And, and that's what God, that's how God is. And, and, and can I just say... Um, don't you want to just say time out here in the text and say, thank God that our father is not like that. Thank God he does not need our impressive credentials to get to, for us to get his attention. Thank God. Oh, I, I can't stress this enough. That God does not play the games of, well, how many followers do you have? What's your, what's your impact on culture? How many people do you have listening to you? Are you uh, what are your credentials? What are your diplomas in? What are your degrees in? How many, how many schools have you been to? How many people have you been prophesied, uh, have, have prophesied over you? No, God does not play those games that we play. We play the game of, I know this person, I know that person, and I have this position, and I have that power. God doesn't play any of those games. And that is the glorious beauty in this text. And it's why this text is about humility, because God does not respond to pride. He does not respond to our presentation. He responds to a humble, contrite, submissive spirit. And this is the best part. Anyone, absolutely anyone can have a contrite, submissive, humble heart and get God's attention. That is the beauty of this passage. So Naaman turns away in a rage and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to wash in the Jordan River. By the way, he's got good reason to not want to wash in the Jordan River. I've been to the Jordan River. This is a picture that I took of the Jordan River. And that right there is the best 
that the Jordan River has to offer. Uh, you can see that that's basically, it's like a tourist destination where people get baptized. I did get baptized in those waters myself back in 2018. This is another picture though, because, and, well, before I put this picture up, let me give you some some context. That picture on the screen right now is the picture of the Jordan River down towards Jerusalem. You're almost to the uh, Jerusalem uh, outer city limits when you get to that baptismal place. Naaman doesn't go there. He's going to the north because remember, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is in the south, Samaria is in the north. So remember, this is the king of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. So Naaman's going to the northern part of Israel. So he's going to see a part of the Jordan that I saw in the first part of my tour through Jerusalem, uh, through Israel, which went from the north to the south. So I, the, fir, the, the, the first time I saw the Jordan River, <laughs> I say a lot to say this, uh, this was the picture that I saw. <laughs> I mean, just look at it. This is the first picture that I saw the Jordan River. I remember that the tour guide was saying, oh, the Jordan River is coming up. Everybody get your cameras ready. Everybody get your cameras ready. And then we literally, if you didn't have your cameras ready, you passed the Jordan River before you even saw it, before you even had a chance to take a picture. It is totally unimpressive. Uh, of course, that's new industrial modern technology there. I think that's a gas pipeline. Uh, ignore that. But this is why Naaman's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to go and it's basically a stream and it's a dirty stream at that. And it's not deep. And there are parts of the Jordan River I heard I didn't see, but there are parts of the Jordan River that are like three feet wide. So Naaman is being challenged here. And this is how God deals with us. He deals with us on the basis of our pride. He does. He, he's testing our spirits here. He's testing Naaman's spirit. Are you going to operate with God the way that you operate with dignitaries and powerful people in the world? Or are you going to operate with God on his terms? And can I just give you the Cliff Notes version on how to get your prayers heard? Go with God's terms. Yeah, go with God's terms. Don't play the game. Don't act like you need to put on a show. You know, that's what the Pharisees did. Who, who did Jesus have the hardest time with? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the people with the huge boxes, the phylacteries, and, um, you know, the, 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 the little boxes on their arms that were filled with the scrolls of the Torah. They made them long. They made them wide because they wanted to be impressive spiritually. They had long flowing gowns. They sat in Moses' seat. They called each other rabbi and father. And Jesus is like, don't do any of that stuff. That is not the economy of the kingdom. The economy of the kingdom is there's one father, there's one God, there's one Lord, there's one Holy Spirit, and you are all his sheep. And it doesn't matter if you are in the Oval Office or you are in the janitor's office. We all have the same access to the Holy Father through the same Jesus Christ, his son. And we all come to him through his shed blood. And so if you're in the Oval Office, you need to bow the knee. And if you're in the janitor's office, you need to bow the knee. And what God is doing, maybe in your life right now is to get you to come down off of your mountain, get off of your high horse and come down and humble yourself and say, Father, here I am as I am. And I have nothing to bring to you except the knowledge that Jesus Christ, your son was, was put to death for my sake and makes me right with you. And I depend on your goodness and grace and not my religious pedigree, upbringing activity. This is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is you build a reputation for yourself before God, then you go to him with your reputation and you bring it before him and he's obliged to answer you. And the gospel is you have no re uh, reputation, you have no rights, you have nothing to bring to God, you just bring yourself and your sin and he forgives you and cleanses you and then he answers your prayers based on his righteousness, not yours. Religion humbles you. Um, sorry, religion uh, 
fills you with pride, the gospel humbles you. And that's the difference here. And so Naaman is being challenged. He's being challenged. Really, it's a gospel challenge. Naaman, you can't save yourself, and the king won't save you. And even the prophet doesn't even want to talk to you. He's just going to tell you, can you, can you go and obey? Can you humble yourself and get into that river that doesn't even look like a river and trust that God's word is enough? Period. That's it. That's what this text, text is about. Beautiful text. Verse 13, it says, But the servants came nearer to him and said, My father, now remember, Naaman is angry. He doesn't want to do it. And the servants, and again, here's the theme of the passage. God doesn't work through the kings, does he? He works through the servants. The servants came near and said to my father, it is, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored. And look at this, the flesh like a little child and he was clean. So he's born again. This is a picture of born again. That's what Leviticus chapter 14 outlines for those who were healed of an infectious skin disease. Naaman is healed like a, he's got not just the um, infection is gone. He's got brand new skin. So we're, we're being asked to see on, from, from our perspective, hindsight of the new covenantal terms and the new covenant, covenantal uh, realities of being born again, that Naaman is literally experiencing that. He dips himself seven times in the Jordan. Seven is a number for completion. Uh, this is all throughout the Bible. We don't have to delve too much into that. But he's just being asked to trust God completely and surrender. And wash me clean. And, and, and how does all this happen so far? How does he hear about the opportunity to be healed? Through a servant girl. How does he get convinced to not get angry and, and stomp off in a rage because of pride through his servants who say, look, just do what he asked because you'll be healed. Isn't it worth it to be humble, to, to, to be healed? Isn't humility the, the simplest thing that, that God asks you to receive healing in your life? Like, don't be a fool. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. There's so many promises. We'll get to them later on in this content about that. Uh, so verse 15, then he returned to the man of God. Now, Naaman has changed. He's not just changed physically, okay? And this is so good. He's changed spiritually. So he returns back to Elijah. He and his, all, his, all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is, a, there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it. So Naaman's like, no, 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 take, take the money. Take the stuff that I want to give you. But Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord. So Naaman, and this is, has to be reemphasized again and again. He's not just healed physically. He's healed spiritually. Uh, let's take a look-see at the fact that he says, uh, I'm now ready to give. Like he came, he came to bribe, you know, that's really with the, with the 10 sets of clothing and the 6,000 shekels of gold and, and the 10 talents of silver. He came to bribe God. Now he wants to bless God. And that is a difference. And notice that Elisha says, no, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. And by the way, in the new Testament version, I'm sorry, in the new international version, verse 16, Elisha says, as the Lord lives whom I serve. So before whom I stand is another way of saying before whom I serve. So Elisha says, I'm just a servant of God and your servants got you here. And that servant girl got you here. So everything is, everything about this passage is, is, is revolving around servanthood. That is the econ economics of the kingdom, serving others. The, 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 the son of man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for others. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment because we're going to get to some lessons on humility because, again, it rings loudly in heaven. It is a very um, disdained value here on earth. So he, and you have to think about Elisha here too. It, Naaman's like, I'm going to pay you big here. And, and Elisha's like, no, nope, I'm just God's servant. You can't pay me. This is, if, I, if I accept payment, and this is what Elisha's really thinking, if I accept payment from you, then it will feel like that you have earned, earned what you got. And there's a gospel principle here. Isn't it, isn't it the way, isn't it the natural human experience to think, okay, I got saved and I know it's by grace. I know I didn't do anything to, to earn it, but now I need to kind of like live up to it. And if I don't live up to it, then God will take it away from me. Isn't that how we are? We're just like Naaman. Like God saved me. God made me his own. God made me a child. Now I need to make sure that I do good work so that he still loves me. No, you don't work for God's salvation. You work from God's salvation. And, but even the works of our salvation, the works that we work from salvation is not to keep ourselves saved. It is because we are saved. We are joyfully overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And we aren't here in, and then we don't get into the back regress back into the religious structures of trying to bribe God like Naaman was doing in the beginning of this passage. And, and we're willing to give to God freely because we know everything that we have and everything that we are is because of him. Now, I think about Elisha in this moment because I am a minister. I am a pastor. I make my living on preaching and teaching the word of God. How tempting it must have been for Elisha to say no. I'm sorry, to say yes when it says that he urged him. Like Elisha says no. And Naaman says, no, 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 seriously, I mean it. Come on, take it. And Elisha says, no, again. <laughs> to, to be honest with you, that is a sincere test of Elisha's attitude. To be able to refuse twice. You, I can, anybody can refuse once, but to be able to refuse twice, to make sure that it is a gospel presentation that he is giving. I am giving this word to you free of charge. I am not charging. You, you come to the word freely. The word is offered freely. If you want to supply back into the word, it is not a requirement from you. And that is what Elisha is actually embodying here. It's powerful. Then notice verse 17, again, slowing down in the text. If not, please let there be given to your servant. Now look at this. The, the noble, victorious uh, commander of the armies of Syria now calls himself a servant of the prophet of Israel. The guy who had it all now realizes that everything that he has is from God. And, and all he wants to do is just worship this God. Give me some earth. Give me some dirt from this land because I'm going to set up. And really what he means here is he's going to set up a little altar in his home back in Syria. And he's going to put the dirt down from Israel. And he's going to set up some place to kneel or pray or worship. And, and you know, this is just ancient times the way they thought. And I'm going to worship God on this ground. So you have a, tr a, a tremendous transformation in Naaman's heart, and we cannot afford to miss it because it's not just a physical transformation. It is a spiritual, mental, and emotional, uh, even as ideological transformation in his life. Then he has a, an issue, and I have gone to this passage before on this channel, particularly in 10 Questions with Tim, because I get a lot of questions from some of our watchers about, well, what do I do in this situation where I work in this you know, industry, and it causes me to do things that I'm not okay with as a Christian. And that question is a valid question. Well, guess who had that question first? <laughs> Naaman. Naaman has this question right here in 2 uh, Kings 5, 18. It says, in this matter, 
May the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and, and Ramon is a false god of the Syrians, he says, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. And when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So this is a really amazing passage. Elisha is filled with grace for Naaman. By the way, churches need to be filled with grace for new believers. I think it's one of the most destructive things that we do as Christians, even in our modern age, is we are so hard on new believers. We expect new believers to act like seasoned believers. We, accept, we expect new believers to abandon everything immediately or else they can't even be called believers. Uh, no, no, they're, they're new believers. They're taking baby steps to God. They might still swear, okay? They might still lie. They might still lust. They might still have some arrogance in them. Can we have some mercy as God takes them from where they were and brings them to where he wants them to be. And you might not even be alive to see it before it's done, right? So this is the, this is the point here that he's got an issue. His job requires him to go to this worship of this pagan God and his boss is going to be on his arm and his boss is going to bow. I'm not bowing, but he's bowing. So I'm going to have to like do this. And I, would you pardon me? I don't want to lose my job. I don't know how I should handle this. And I love the fact that Elisha says, go in peace. Like, yeah, it's fine. You're good. No worries. And I, you know, there's a great principle for that. Some Christians, you're in, a, you're in an industry where you're being asked to do things or at least be present, maybe not do them, but be present in, the, in, in areas where uh, people are doing things that are against the word of God. Well, you're going to have to ask for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and discernment on how you approach that environment going forward. There is no black and white in many cases. I mean, Obviously, it's black and white if a doctor is asking you, a nurse, to assist in an abortion. You, you have to quit. You have to get out of the job. You have to walk away. Absolutely, 100%. I don't care how newly saved you are, really. That, that, that's, that's just stone-cold murder. But, but when you're involved in, I don't know, some other industry or some other medical thing where it is required of you to be present in the room when other people are doing things that are against God's word and you're not partnering with it, but you're there. And so it might seem like you're participating. Can you get grace in that situation? I absolutely believe you can. I absolutely believe that you can, but grace for new believers, grace for new converts as Elisha uh, embodies here for Naaman. And I think we would do better if we erred on the side of grace. Amen. So that's that. Let's go on in verse 19. When Naaman had gone from him a short distance, look at this. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. And this is the last time you're going to see servant in a, uh, in a positive light because he's no longer a servant in his spirit. Elijah, uh, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, see, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. <laughs> oh, Amazing to see how, how distant spiritually Gehazi is from Elijah. Elijah was compelled by Naaman. Take the gifts, take the gifts twice. No, I'm not taking the gifts because it's gospel. It's freedom. It's free in Christ. You get it for free. Okay. I know he's not taking, speaking of Christ because this is before Christ and he doesn't know Christ yet personally. But anyway, he, you get this free of charge. This is not, this is not an economic relationship. And here is a Gehazi watching all this go down and he has the devil enter into his heart. He really does. He has selfishness. He has pride. All that was in Naaman spiritually comes into Gehazi. And he goes over and he runs up to Naaman. He's like, hey, 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 let me, let me get some of this goodness. Because look what he says in verse 21. It says, so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariots to meet him and said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master sent me to say, there has now just come from Come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. So he doesn't ask for much, right? He doesn't ask for all 10 
pieces of clothing. He doesn't ask for all uh, five or what was it, 10 talents of gold. He's asking for like 20%. You know, just give, give a, a portion of what you brought because I just realized that my master has some people staying over and he needs some money. <laughs> so he's lying now and, and he's gain seeking and he's serving himself. And this is the exact kind of prophet or minister that Paul warns Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he talks about that there will come a time when men will think, and there was a time even in Paul's day where men will think that by leading people spiritually, it is a way to gain financially. That that is what the ministry is all about. That, that you, you as a minister deserve to be well paid more than other people because you're a godly man. Uh, there is no such thing. Yes. I will say godly men can be tremendously blessed. I believe I am tremendously blessed by God's goodness. Um, but it is not the motivation of godliness to be blessed. The blessing is the fruit, not the root of ministry. The blessing could be the fruit. Uh, a lot of faithful ministers have not been rich. A lot of faithful ministers have been poor. But, but that's, not the, that's not the root of ministry. The, min, the ministry of root and serving God is to benefit others and leave it there. And if there is, if there is by God's grace, without manipulation, increase into that person's life, it's fine. But if you're going to manipulate the ministry for money, watch out. Paul has severe warnings for that spirit in the life of Timothy. First Timothy chapter six, if you want to read it later. Okay. Verse 23, Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. He's got no problem. He wanted to give the whole thing to him, but he says, yeah, here's two talents. No problem. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on the two servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the man away and they departed. And he went and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, where have you been Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Whoa. <laughs> uh, this passage is unbelievable. Gehazi, you've just witnessed a supernatural miracle. You just watched your boss say no to these gifts. Now you take them. And notice verse 24. This is the problem with greed. This is the problem with tr uh, chicanery and manipulation. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent them in away and they departed. He hides the blessing. Because he knows it's wrong. You can't enjoy a blessing that you gain illfully. You can't enjoy blessings that you have manipulated for. They, they have to be hidden. It's just kind of amazing. It's a picture of greed again and again in scripture. That greed and, um, you know, the desire for more. Even if we get it, we can't really enjoy it. I think about the parable of the guy who had the barns that were filled to capacity because his pr crops produced greatly. This is, I think, Luke 12. And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns. So he tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones. And he says, now I'm going to sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And it says that the Lord said in that day, you fool, tonight your soul is demanded of you. Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? He, he planned to save all of this stuff up for himself and he lost it all in, in a day. You, the scriptures are clear. If you seek to give, more will be given to you. The scripture says in Proverbs 11, there is one who uh, withholds unduly and even what he has is taken from him. There's one who gives freely and, and gets even more. Giving is the economy of the kingdom, not taking. Gehazi doesn't get this. Gehazi has adopted the wrong philosophies of Naaman the Syrian before he was saved. And so what does he get? Look at what it says. Elisha knows what's going on. He's the prophet of God. You can't fool Elisha. And look what he says. He said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? 
What was it time to accept money and garments and olive oil orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. He's got the spirit of pre-saved Naaman. And guess what? He's got the condition now of pre-saved Naaman. There's an amazing flip of the script. You've got the guy who is serving the prophet is now cursed with the, with the um, consequences of sin in Naaman. By the way, just one last thing I want to point out here about this text is that you have this proclamation, the, na- the, the, the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you and your descendants forever. That is a harsh judgment. Why? Because I believe God holds his prophets and those who speak with his prophets to a higher standard. What does James chapter three say? Not many of you should desire to be uh, teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There is a higher level of uh, judgment for those who manipulate the ministry for their own material gain. There is a higher level of judgment. God will not hold them guiltless. So just, I don't know, this was not in my notes to share this, but some of you have been hurt by pastors. You have been um, manipulated by ministers and maybe you've given up on faith or the Christian church or the Christian traditions because of that. And so you do Christianity on your, on your own because you don't want to, I don't know, be hurt again and lose trust more in the, in the establishment of the church. Can I just say that every minister that has hurt you and manipulated you falsely and legitimately like that, they're going to pay and and they're going to pay in, in this life and in the next. Don't for one second think that God is going to just let bygones be bygones. He holds his ministers to a higher level of judgment in that regard. I believe 100%. What does Jesus say? If you cause one of these little ones of mine to sin, it'd be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. A millstone in Jesus' day weighed about two to 4,000 pounds. This is like total, complete judgment. You do not hurt God's servants, God's people. You do not manipulate the ministry at the expense of the people. And, and for all these you know, prosperity preachers who, who bilk people and, and usually poor people off of their income, uh, through the manipulation of the word, if you give to me, you'll get from God. Through the manipulation of uh, scripture's teaching that God wants you to bl- be blessed, but you're not going to be blessed unless you bless the man of God. And and all these kind of you know televangelist mark uh, marketing gurus really is what they are that 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 feed themselves off of the ministry of the word at the expense of the people. Don't you worry for one second; God will take care of them. But I would say to those of you who have given up on faith because of these people. Don't hold the Lord and the church accountable in your life because of a few bad experiences with the church in your life. Okay? There is a blessing to being involved in the church. There is a blessing to being engaged in the life of faith. Please, please don't hurt your future and yourself right now by not having a community of faith in which you can grow strong uh, through, through the local church. Amen? That is the text. Let's tap into some truth. Okay, so a couple things that we're going to talk about to tap into truth, and I want to just take some time here. I've already said this once another way, but I'm going to put it up on the screen so that we get it in our hearts. We think life works through kings, but God shows us life works through servants. This is the story of the chapter. Servants move the ball down the field. Kings are just, in some ways, 
window dressing. They're, they're, um, they're, they're just stage items. They're props on the stage of God's activity. Okay? Why do I say that? Why is that so important? Because we have to get away from the mindset of the world. The, the, the mindset of the world will keep us from the best that God has to offer us because we will still be thinking that God works in terms of influence and power and prestige. And, and if we get those things or we get those people who have those things, then we will be able to move our, our ball down the field. No, God works through servant. If you serve, if you serve, you're in a good place. So without humility, we never see healing spiritually or physically. This is the gospel. This is the gospel because that's exactly what happens with Naaman. He has to humble himself to see both healing physically and healing spiritually. And every human being needs both of those healings. You need spiritual healing and you need physical healing. Now, physical healing, this side of the resurrection will always be temporary. But if you have spiritual healing, that is that you have repented of your sins and turned to the Lord, then your physical healing will happen instantaneously at the resurrection. So you've got that only though through humility. So let's talk about humility. A couple of quotes that I want to share from some great um, uh, members of the church historically. St. Augustine, fourth century church father said this, humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Listen to what St. Augustine's saying there. If you don't have humility, you have no other shot at any of the other virtues. And you want those virtues because those virtues bring life. Those virtues bring joy. Okay. It starts with humility. Likewise, pride is the antithesis of every good thing that you could get from God and in God. Pride is the root of every other sin. Humility is the root of every other virtue. Got it? They're actually parallel to each other. And we live in a culture, <laughs> I don't have to tell you, okay? We live in a culture that thinks pride is a good thing. And heaven forbid that you, the church, get indoctrinated into that mindset. No, pride is never a good thing. Pride in your Sexuality is not a good thing. It is actually a symbol of absolute disregard for God's word. It is an absolute abomination in the eyes of God to be proud of your sexuality. Is proud of your sin, proud of your immorality. No, Christians, we cannot in any way take part in those sins. We must expose, we must walk away, we must flee, we must live with righteousness and humility before God. So pride, the root of sin, humility, the, the root of uh, virtues. Uh, T.S. Eliot, very famous uh, former Unitarian Universalist, uh, po poet, playwright in American history, who turned into a devout Christian, devout Anglican, said this, humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than a desire to think well of oneself. Mm. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> and again, T.S. Eliot, once a Unitarian Universalist, thought all roads led, lead, led to heaven, turned into a devout Anglican Christian writer, powerful playwright and poet from the last century. And he says it basically so clearly, nothing dies harder in your life than the desire to think well of yourself. So let me give you some uh, points from this text on the uh, tests of humility, because we can talk about humility, but how, how does that happen, Pastor? And, and that's really the question. This is where the rubber hits the road. And I want to spend some time here intentionally. Number one, humility happens when we serve God in spite of our circumstances. That's the servant girl's challenge. She was a refugee. She had no legal rights. She had nothing to boast about, but she still served God in her condition, in her job. Can you serve God when everybody in the job is out to get you, spitefully uses you and treats you terribly? Can I tell you about this girl right now? She's in the joy of heaven. 
She is in the eternal bliss that is the presence of God because she served faithfully in spite of her circumstances. Number two, humility happens when our assumptions are subordinate to God's prescriptions. And that was Naaman's challenge. And this is so important. Naaman had assumptions. What was the assumptions? Remember, he said, oh, I thought that if I showed up with all this stuff and I came to Elisha's house, Elijah would come out, wave his hand and say this great thing, this great, great pomp and prestige and you know all these things would happen it would look really cool and everybody would see and i thought and i thought and i thought and and god says no you need to subordinate what you think to what i have decreed and that is a test of your humility humility happens when you stop assuming that you know what's best when you stop assuming that god is on your side and going to go with what you think and you subordinate Okay, you got to subordinate your assumptions to God's prescriptions. This is happening less and less, both in and out of the church in modern times. Number three, humility happens when we serve God for the sake of others and not for personal gain. This was Elisha's challenge. Here, take the money. No, 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 seriously, take the money. No, I'm not serving you for that. This is not what that is about. The gospel is not about getting. The gospel is about giving. God so loved that he gave. And when we serve God for the sake of others, and not for what they can get us, we are embracing an attitude of humility. This quid pro quo rationale for serving God has got to go, okay? You couldn't earn salvation. Why do you think you could earn anything beyond salvation from God based on your works? And if you are serving God for what it gets you, then you're really serving you. I've said this countless times on this channel. It has to be reinforced once again. Fourth test of humility. Uh, humility happens when we seek God's approval rather than the applause of others. This was Gehazi's challenge. So really, you know, Gehazi fails this one and the, and the previous one. He, he fails all of them. <laughs> Gehazi failed because he served himself um, through his circumstances. Uh, Gehazi failed number two because he assumed that God would bless him or he deserved to be blessed because he obeyed God by serving Elisha. He, he failed number three because he was serving for personal gain. And, he, and most importantly, he failed number four because he was looking for Naaman to kind of like throw a kickback at him. You know, I deserve this. Uh, John Piper famously said, humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. If you think that you deserve it, you're not humble. If you think that you've earned it, you're not humble. If you think you've got it coming to you just because of who you are or what you've done, you're not humble. Those are the tests of humility. Humility is the opposite of entitlement. And what is parallel with the opposite of entitlement? Gratitude, thankfulness. And those are the tests of humility from this passage. Let's go on. One last thing I want to share with you because I would, I would not be doing my service to you as a pastor if I didn't share with you a couple of uh, points about how to develop humility. And these are from other scriptures. So that was the, the, the test of humility from chapter five of second Kings. Let's took, take a look at some other verses of scripture on how to develop humility. Because I, how do you develop humility? Nobody can write a book on I achieved humility and you can too. <laughs> you know, the moment we write that book is the moment we're no longer humble. Okay. So, but there are prescriptions and texts in scripture on how to develop humility. So let's look at them. Um, number one, consider today a serve others day. As 1 Peter chapter 4.10 says, as you've received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. And Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What if you looked at today, instead of a, how is life treating me today? What if you looked at it as, how can I treat others today? It's a paradigm shift, but it is a powerful and potent paradigm shift in your life. Number two, confess your sins to God and others. James chapter four, he resists 
the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. By the way, some of you have no spiritual victory because you're not humble. And you can't resist the devil. Look at verse 7. You can't resist the devil until you submit it to God. Submit to yourselves to God. Then resist the devil. And then he will flee from you. You want spiritual development in your life? You have to humble yourself. How do I humble myself? Confession of sin. What is a way that I can confess my sin practically? I can go to church and get before the table of communion. That's number three. Consider the work of the cross through communion. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a man or let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Communion in your church should be regularly practiced or in your small group so that you can remind yourself that this price was paid for you. Jesus went to the cross so that you could be freed from your sin and you receive the bread and the cup to contemplate the fact that God's grace has saved you and and redeemed you. And then number four, and finally, count your blessings, thankfulness, gratitude. Count your blessings as gift, gifts from God. First Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Take some time today to think, how can I serve others? Uh, what sins do I need to confess because I am not where I should be, but thank God I'm not where I was. Uh, go to the cross and communion and consider now, in this moment, thinking about the good things that God has brought into your life. The, it, nothing destroys your sense of entitlement faster than making a list of the good things that God has done. Nothing destroys your sense of entitlement faster than going back to the cross, than, than serving others, than confessing your sins. So that's it. That's the teaching on humility. I pray it has been a blessing to you. Share the content uh, with someone else. If you do me that favor, like the videos, share the content with someone else, subscribe to the channel. Would really appreciate any number of those things or a combination of all three. Um, it is an absolute privilege to bring this to you. Um, last thing I would ask is if you want to, or if you can, support the channel and a lot of people do already cash app tim hatch live tim hatch live.com slash support and i'm getting my book out shortly i don't know when <laughs> it takes forever for this process to happen but anyway that's what's going on with supporting the channel i'm not totally sure about 10 questions with tim this week i think i'll push it off till next week okay i know some people were giving me the thumbs up for t tomorrow but i got a big week in my uh, ministry at the church and I would like to devote my time to that tomorrow. So we will push 10 questions off at least until next week. Get your questions in, though, because I love your questions, love answering your questions, love spending time together with you. Other than that, have a great night in the name of Jesus.